I'm pretty sanguine about it because we, the book is printed and we do have these copies that we can send to, you know, a few people. You have obviously one of the, one of the 20, you know, and we have a good uh, pre-order set up where we have, you know, Tom set up a, a pre-order site and we have, I'm, we're working on an art print that I'm going to sign. And as a, you know, so even if the book is a couple weeks late, we'll generate more pre-orders and whatever it'll, it'll all work out. But, uh, but it would be nice to have it out in the bookstores on time for sure. A lot of times I'll read a book and, you know, it's something that can be consumed in a different media that, you know, could have easily have been an online comic or could be read on a tablet or a PDF. This is a book that is very much designed to be a book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, that you know, it was done out of a, a love for all the possibilities you can do with the materiality of, you know, the page turn and even holding the book in your hands and hopefully the kind of uncanny feelings. It's a sort of a, you know, first person point of view, a lot of the book when you're holding a book, looking at a panel of someone holding a book with something going on inside, there's like this layering effect that goes on. And it's it's not done particularly out of defiance. I mean, I, I love, uh, I do read stuff online and I, and I also have uh, no trouble with people um, adapting comics to you know, movies or whatever the, I don't, you know, there are people who are real curious about like comics should like stay in their lane kind of. And I don't really feel that way, but I, but I did in this book feel like it was what was fun about it and was challenging was to do kind of a deep dive on all the different ways I could maximize the, the materiality of comic books and books in general and the experience of reading the act of reading, holding a book in your hands and flipping it over to, um, in, in the in the service of of a kind of nar- of a narrative, it's both a testament to Scott McCloud's ability as a writer, but also the relative rarity of experimentation with the form as a book, at least as far as English comics go. That his books are still kind of a frame of reference for these sorts of ideas. You know, it's been like probably what twenty years since Understanding Comics, and we're still talking about Infinite Canvas, and that's still really the, the template for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably been more than 20 years at this point. But uh, but yeah, you know, he he laid uh, a groundwork and people have various quibbles with it and stuff. But the fact is, it sort of set up uh, a, a framework in which to talk about the way comics work and the way we read them and the way we create them. That definitely continues to be uh, useful. Is this an attempt, in a sense, to operate similarly to that in order to, at least from the standpoint of making people very hyper aware of the act of reading a comic? I would say yes, in the sense that I, I do want to people, make people aware of, hey, Jessica, come and bring me some coffee. So yes, I, I definitely had a goal to do that kind of Brechtian, you know, uh, alienation effect where you're always aware that you're reading a comic in ways that are pretty obvious because you're always changing drawing styles. And even though there are very different styles they're all if you know anything about drawing or look at comics a lot you can kind of tell it's all drawn by the same person you know there's no cutting and paste or or mashups in here this is all stuff that i drew but uh i don't it's not intended to be a pedagogical book like i'm not trying to make a particular illustrate a particular point or or thesis with it um i feel like there's i hope there's a lot of ideas about you know how comics work how reading works the joy of holding a book in your hands and reading it. But uh, I find that uh, whatever ideas I have about comics, theoretical, historical, whatever, 
I handle best when I just channel them into a, into creative work. I mean, that's what 99 Ways to Tell a Story was as well. You know, it's been used in a lot of classrooms, and I'm really pleased that it's become a, a fairly canonical textbook in comics and, and even like filmmaking classrooms. But when I was creating it, and same thing with, with Ex Libris, I was doing it with the mind of this is a you know, a work of creation, a work of creativity that I'm challenging myself and having a lot of fun trying to tell a story or retell a story in the case of 99 Ways. It's something I've become aware of since I've been a teacher for so long. And, you know, we, Jessica and I did make these two textbooks, Drawing Words and Writing Pictures and Mastering Comics, which are very, um, pra- they're very hands-on kind of practical manuals. I-, I see a lot of articles about me and, or, you know, prefaces to interviews that are like, you know, comic scholar or comics theorist, Matt Madden. And I don't reject that because I do, I care about that stuff a lot, but, but I'm not a scholar. Like I don't have the rigor to. <laughs> there's overlap between educator and scholar. and Yeah. Yeah. Sure. There's definitely overlap. Uh, but I feel where I'm, where I, where I'm most comfortable and where I think I'm most effective in terms of what people get out of my work is the way I will make a, a fun kind of creative work like Ex Libris or Nine Nine Ways. Um, but that is kind of informed by a lot of things that I pick up going to panel discussions and reading books of comics theory, or just, you know, thinking, looking over the the history of comics and drawing in ideas from other media as well. Does the act of being an educator and um, really looking at all of this stuff in the micro and macro level, I mean, is, is it unavoidable that that ultimately is going to influence the work you make? I don't think it's unavoidable because uh, I, what's unavoidable is that's just it's my temperament. It's the, it's what's always dr- excited me about art and and storytelling. There are plenty of people who teach who uh, it doesn't particularly affect them in that kind of formalistic way. I think I just have an inclination from my earliest interest in art, even as a kid, just stuff that's kind of playful that has surprises to it. Um, something I've been thinking about a lot in my recent story is Ex Libris, also the short story Bridge that was published by Minikush uh, earlier this year, and Drawn Onward, which was a little sort of palindrome experimental short story that I did for Retrofit. I was really thinking about how how much, uh, as a storyteller, I'm indebted to Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone, uh, to you know, Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne, these kind of little short stories that have a twist ending to them, which you know you also find in the European authors that I like. Uh, Julio Cortazar and Borges and people like that and Nabokov that um, have these stories that have some kind of sense of surprise or the uncanny in them. But I've forgotten where we started the question on on that one. Do you risk something like a a twist becoming a crutch? I don't think so in my case. Like I said, it's something I'm really, you know, I've been doing these, writing these stories myself for years. And I'm just now realizing like, oh, that's something I tend to do. And it's not every single story that I do, but it's a tendency that I, I come back to. It's been unconscious up to now? That it was such a that it was such a thing that I that I've come back to multiple times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like um, you know, drawn onward, I was very aware of it being kind of like a uh, this sort of paradoxical story that I meant to have this sort of twist ending. And, and it, again, like with Ex Libris, it's a very a book based story where you have to manipulate the book and kind of read it backwards and forwards to get the full meaning of the story. But Bridge. Uh, started as a 24-hour comic, so I really wasn't thinking about it in any kind of other framework and just just trying to write, write this thing in 24 hours, you know. Uh, and it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, yeah, that also has kind of this uh, twist, you know, ending to it. But other stories, it's not the case, and I don't I don't feel like I run the risk of being of falling into that particular trap of like, oh, you should read Matt Madden's stuff that's, you know, full of twist endings. And, you know, on the flip side, 
the, the, the bigger danger I risk is like, oh, Matt Madden, he's like, I always has weird constraints in all of his work, you know, uh, and that's something I do. That's more of a thing that I, I think about, like, you know, on one hand, I embrace it and I have to because it's like it's sort of it's very upfront. It's what a lot of my teaching is about, talking about uh, working with constraints and having these funny little rules and stuff. And I'm, I am aware in that in that context that there is that danger of, of it sort of coming between readers and, and my books are coming to it, you know, knowing this stuff about me. You know, that said, Ex Libris is not, again, I, you know, I try to mix it up for that reason. So there, there's definitely a lot of like constraints and rules baked into Ex Libris. The overall work, the overall structure is, is fairly straightforward narrative. It's like a person locked in a room narrative. It's sort of like, you know, repulsion or, you know, there are lots of stories like that of like somebody or Jason Shiga's book, uh, what was that called? Is it Fleep, the one where there's like a little, it's like a character inside a black box that's trying to escape for a uh, hundred pages. So that's a different kind of precedent that I'm drawing from in, in this case. So. Is the ultimate goal when you set out and create the exercise or create the constraints to eventually sort of transcend or be able to shed them at some point in the process? Uh, not necessarily. No, no. Um, uh, I want to uh, take them to a level where they transcend just being an exercise, you could say. Although I also defend the idea of having an exercise too, especially when you're talking about short comics, you know, you can try something. It doesn't have to be much more than like showing, oh, you could do this in comics, have a story that, you know, you can read backwards and forwards or that, uh, you know, uh, you can read it, the panels in multiple directions and tell different stories. Um, that's fine. I think with a longer work, you know, I do have the ambition to make it, uh, co- cohere as a work of art by any number of, you know, classic standards and, uh, and more contemporary, you know, conceptual standards or whatever. In Ulipo, the workshop for potential literature, which has been kind of my main source of inspiration and learning about the whole world of creating stuff with constraints. Part of their ongoing debate and dialogue since they were founded in 1960 is, is just that, exactly that question. Like if you're going to make a novel without the letter E, for example, like Georges Perec's famous novel, La Disparition, uh, which is a you know 350 page novel where he doesn't use uh, E at all, except that he does actually in the middle, he snuck one in there just to see if people are paying attention. That book declares itself in every page as a constrained work of art because you're always aware of the fact that there's uh, no E in there. But it also seduces you and you get used to its particular weird rhythm of talking and everything. All the expressions have to be changed because common expressions have to be worked around. But you come up with new common expressions and there becomes like a new a new vernacular that you get used to in reading the book. And then it just becomes a book and it becomes interesting and you get absorbed in the characters and... Um, and the plot, which is all these characters who are trying to find something that's missing from their life, and which they've slowly start to realize is the letter E. And as soon as they visualize it and start talking about it, they're murdered horribly. So it's got a kind of Agatha Christie mystery novel kind of structure to it as well, uh, which I think also influenced some of the stuff I've been doing more recently, uh, having this playfulness uh, in, in the storytelling that goes along hand in hand with, with the constraints. In, in Ulipo, there's kind of a debate where some of the members of the group are like, you should always, if you're going to use a constraint, like a, a lipogram, which is a text where you remove a particular letter or more, then your work should really be all about the fact that you're not using letter E. And the Parekh novel is a great example of that because 
in terms of it almost being a meta commentary of its own structure without saying like oh i wrote this novel without the letter e in fact he's forbidden from he's forbidden from he can't say that because according to his own rules because it would require the letter e it's yeah it's very meta in that sense that it's like built into the story um and what's i think why that novel endures and why i talk about it a lot is because it does manage to 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 very much bring its state the constraint up, up front in a way that's like part integral to the work itself and which also becomes the material of the plot of, of the, the novel. So um, that's kind of a, I, th- I would say that's sort of the dominant idea in Udipo, but there are definitely other people who are like, no, you should have, you should really hide the constraint. You should use it just as a kind of creative tool and then kind of cover your tracks, <laughs> you know? Uh, so like Harry Matthews was an American member of Udipo, a really great writer of short stories and novels and poetry. And in his books, when you read them, you can never figure out what exactly he's done. It's, there's no like, oh, this is a book where, you know, every third word, you know, has an A in it or something like that. There's always a feeling that there's some weird stuff going on. But he would go back and deliberately change stuff around and edit it so that you can't really tell what he's been doing. You just know that there's some magical, weird stuff going on and, and that it makes for a very unique and compelling reading experience. I fall sort of somewhere in the middle there, I guess, because I... I, I I have no, I, I do it. I enjoy, you know, working with constraints and it's been my, most of the comics I've done in the last 25 years have been based on some level of constraint and all of them more or less explicit. Like if, if it's not stated in even the title, like I've done some comics based on poetry forms, like the sonnet. And they're usually, you know, the, the name of the, like a Sistina or a Pantoum or some comic form, some poetry forms that I've used. And that's included in the title of the comic usually. So you know what you're getting into, but then that's just becomes kind of a form. I mean, that you do that in poetry too. You, you know, there's this element of genre as well, like a novella versus a novel and things like that. I wonder how much of the impulse for people to hide it is this notion that it might be kind of a, a crutch that they're falling back on, or whether it's just a concern of people being too hyper aware of it while reading it, and that sort of detracting from the text itself. Yeah, I think it depends on writer, but I, I suspect more the latter that, you know, I don't think anyone really, once you've, if you've done some writing or, or creating of any sort, even if you've never heard of Udipo and, and all this, these authors I'm talking about right now are new to you, you've probably had that experience where you're like trying to come up with an idea and you just come with some limiting structure. Sometimes even just saying it's going to be one page long. I'm not going to let myself go over a page. It's something as simple as that can really focus you and bring out ideas that you didn't know you were able to fit into one page, you know? The tyranny of the blank page. Yeah, exactly. Giving yourself a starting point. That's totally legit. And if, if that's all people do with a constraint, then they're already getting a lot out of it. And maybe there's a sense then they're like, oh, well, that makes it kind of a creative writing class exercise. That doesn't really work as a finished work of art. To me, that's just a matter of, you know, keeping it going and, and editing. And, and it's, it's, it runs parallel to the idea of whether it's an exercise or not. But I do think the second thing you said that the fact that like some writers who use a lot of constraints in their writing might feel like, well, they don't want to foreground that. They want to sort of use that as a way to generate these ideas and then but have the book stand on its own. And again, I'm, I find myself sort of in the middle, you know, because I've one thing I'd like to do in the coming few years is put out a collection of the shorter constrained comics I've done. You know, people I've talked to is like, oh, yeah, it should be like constrained comics by Matt Madden. And each one will have like an explanation of each constraint going into it and have, I don't know, like a teacher's guide and stuff like that. And I see the value of that both commercially and also practically because I do. I think my stuff w- works well in the classroom. But 
But I also, part of me is also like, yeah, but uh, you know, this is, when it comes down to it, these are not, again, like with the Scott McCloud thing, I'm not a pedagogical writer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cartoonist. You know, I want to tell stories. I want to create worlds that people enter. And even if I'm waving my hand in your face the whole time saying, hey, this is fake. This is lines on paper. I still want you to get in there and have fun, you know? So uh, fortunately now we have PDFs and online stuff. So you can, I could do a book that'd be very much just like short comics by Matt Madden. But then, you know, when I'm selling it, there's also like material you can get if you're a teacher or whatever, and talk about the constraints in a, in a, in a, expanded context of the book, I guess. I had heard an interview that you did and you mentioned uh, Honor Winner's Night of Traveler by Italo Cavino. And I probably like a lot of people who have read that book over the past, you know, half century mm -hmm. did so in the context of a creative writing class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very canonical in that sense. Yeah. It is an exercise and, and it does sort of, at the very least, it sort of potentially points people in a direction. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and it was more than anything else, the direct inspiration for Ex Libris. I mean, it was reading that book, uh, which ironically, I, I didn't read in, in college, but I read I read later on. But that um, the characteristic of, well, being more than one thing at once, having these kind of pastiches of different kinds of novels, where you only read the first chapter interspersed with these, these kind of more, uh, almost like, police procedural or mystery novel chapters where you're the, you're addressed in the second person, which I didn't even think about at the time, but it probably has something to do with why I use the first person approach for the sort of framing story in Ex Libris. You're trying to solve the mystery of why you can't find the actual authentic copy of Italo Calvino's new novel, If I'm Interested in the Traveler. It's second person, right? It's second. Yeah, it's second person where it's saying you are the reader uh, and it sort of, yeah, yeah. So there's an author. So it's but in, this, in the sense of not just being a third part, like an omniscient kind of thing, it has a more intimate uh, kind of engagement with the reader. That, that's very true. And, you know, I wonder doing a book like this right now, the other thing is like Calvino is really huge in like the 70s, you know, and all that's the sort of fabulous fiction and postmodern fiction, metafiction. Uh, it's not exactly in fashion right now. And I'm, you know, I'm curious to see with this book coming out, how people will take it. There's definitely the people who get it right away. They're like, oh yeah, I read that book, you know, like you, like I read in college. Uh, or I love Calvino, or I love Ulipo, and they sort of they get right in in the in the pocket with it. Um, but there are certainly a lot of readers out there now who I think are more used to more straightforward narrative. You know, we're living in the age of the the memoir and the nonfiction comic, and there's a bit less of the uh, kind of a fanciful, you know, purely fictional experimental work coming out in this in in the indie comics world right now. So. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, so the initial reactions have been really good. I mean, I've gotten good reviews from, you know, PW and Library Journal and the, the few friends of mine that have read it have, have tended to really like it. Of course, they're my friends, so they tend to like Italo Calvino as well. So, you know. It's a, it's a writerly book. And yeah. so I think it's something that attracts writers, which, you know, that's a, that's a great demographic to go after in the, yeah. the graphic novel I mean, world. It's a writerly and a, um, I'm not sure what the cartoonist, uh, Equivalent of that would be a, car a cartoonistly, cartoonisty, yeah. a cartoonisty book because it's also, I mean, the sweet spot is somebody who's w into kind of world fiction and experimental fiction, but also like a big comics reader because I cover everything from, you know, uh, Rudolph Tupfer to uh, Condorito's, you know, coloring method and plop takes at the end, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff from the history of comics and like riffs on different 
artists and genres and styles and stuff. So, um, and, uh, you know, you know, my dad who's, you know, he's, I've been a cartoonist for, you know, 30 years now and he's read a lot of comics that I've shown him and stuff, but he keeps on sending me texts saying like, I, I want to talk to you about your new book, but I, I just can't seem to make quite sense of what's going on yet. You know, he only has the advanced reader's copy, which is a, you know, we did a little galley that's in black and white. So uh, he should probably wait to read the, the big version. What's your sense of what he can't quite grasp? My, my hunch is that has to do with the, the, lang- the basic language of comics, you know, which is another kind of open question about this, putting this book out in a larger world. It's, uh, I tried to make it very accessible and clear reading as a comic, but I've become aware, especially as a teacher over the years, that comics, reading comics uh, isn't as easy and straightforward as it looks to some people. People tend to, you know, it's sort of a classic teacher thing of people dismissing comics as not being sophisticated enough. But there's a lot that goes into parsing how panels sit together, how you, you know, relate images to text. And especially when you start adding layers of different information into one panel or one page. And I suspect that's part of the hangup where I have a lot of stuff of jumping from one comic to another. And sometimes I do it by, you know, sort of in a very classical way where I'll show the, you know, the hand turning the page and you see them opening a book. Okay. Oh, now we're reading a new comic. But as I kind of hope to sort of train the reader as I go along, that this is a thing that happened in this book, this reader, the character in this room is picking up, you know, books and sometimes just looking at one panel and putting it down again. And the book would have been twice twice as long if every time that happened, I did a little four panel sequence of like, okay, here's the hand taking the book off the shelf, you know, opening it up to whatever page, closing it. So I, I cut, I, there's a lot of elision of that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's a bit more telegraphic. And I, I think it's pretty clear. I think, you know, if you read it, uh, you, you get, you kind of understand that. But, you know, someone like my dad, who's older and has never been a big comics reader, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's a step too far. I don't know. As I think you alluded to the, sort of central character is really a, a surrogate for the reader themselves. And, and having a character that just completely fades into the background almost immediately is probably adds to the difficulty in sort of contextualizing this. Yeah, possibly. It's funny, you know, when I, this book has been kicking around for a long time, I probably first had the idea, you know, in possibly even in the late nineties, you know, before I did 99 ways. And it was something that I sat on for a long time partly because I wasn't sure if it's something that I could pull off. And partly was that idea that like, well, I was really wary about doing a first person narrative because, uh, you know, I'm a big film buff and everyone knows that Orson Welles tried to, after uh, Citizen Kane, he famously tried to make a first person version of Heart of Darkness and he shot some test footage and, and he gave up. He's like, I can't do this. This is too difficult. If Orson Welles can't do it then. Exactly. If Orson Welles can't do it. So I, I had that in mind. And I was like, do I really want to try this? And I was looking around. I haven't seen a lot of other comics that do that. Um, but in the, in the intervening, you know, 20 years, video games have become so prevalent and the first person shooter and kind of first person point of view in like, you know, Minecraft and Roblox or whatever that my kids play all the time has become so comfortable and prevalent and kind of transparent that I feel like when I look at it now and when I showed it to some readers earlier on, like, what do you think about the first person thing? People have generally been like, oh, it's fine. I, did, I didn't really notice it. You know, it puts the burden of any kind of character development or psychological or backstory on the voiceover narration, uh, which is another thing, which, you know, it's not my favorite thing. I've tried a bunch of my comics have no narration at all. I try to 
limit the text. And I did a lot of editing, especially as I got toward the end of this, to, to really keep it to a minimum. But I also didn't want to have the character actually speaking like a one act, like a one person play kind of thing, uh, like speaking in word balloon. I thought that would be even more not alienating, but off putting. <laughs> I, I decided just like sticking with that. The voiceover narration was a more direct way to have that uh, rapport and just like a smoothness of the reading experience where you're reading kind of the, the what's going on in their head and uh, and seeing what they're seeing. How much has this evolved and what did this look like, you know, 20 years ago when you first hit on the idea? The basic narrative structure was in there pretty early on. Like I knew that I wanted to have, um, that it was kind of like, like Repulsion or The Tenant, the Polanski movie. And more recently, I read the, the, the French novel that I, that The Tenant is based on by, which is by uh, Roland Topo, the who is the artist on that fantastic planet animated sci-fi movie is what he's best known for in the US, but really good artist and, and novelist. These stories where it creates this um, and almost like a Samuel Beckett kind of thing, like a character stuck in a room, you know, and how are they going to get out of the room? There's some kind of like psychic force or what's that Buñuel movie uh, where all the dinner guests are afraid they're, none of them can be the first one to leave the party at the end of the night. I knew that I wanted to have this, uh, this setup of a situation of a character that were, were, and from the get go, for whatever reason, I knew I wanted to be first person. I wanted to like you to be in the room and really focus on, the books like be because I also like comics with with no people in them, like uh, Martin Von James's book The Cage is a famous example. Uh, I remember Al Columbia did a, a short comic that we put in Best American Comics a few years ago. There was sort of a murder mystery, but it's mostly just shots of really detailed shots of um, close-ups of different parts of an apartment. And you'll see like there's a little bit of coiled rope in a corner. There's a spot of blood on the sofa. And at the very end, almost incidentally, there's like a choked old lady in the corner. We talked about sort of like, you know, the potential alienation of, of removing the protagonist. But that is sort of that's taking it to its logical extreme of just removing people altogether. In a sense, you are kind of robbing people of an easy entry point. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the cage is definitely the, the the ultimate case of that because there's not even any suggestion of human characters in that. It really is a, a explore, exploring a space and it's a very anti-narrative kind of thing. In the, you know, this Al Columbia piece, it's like almost like a crime scene photo kind of thing or a Ouija sort of setup. And uh, in my book, there's a character there and we see their hand. So there, there's actually someone very present the whole time. You're just not... Uh, you're seeing things through their eyes and not getting to see what they're doing. And, you know, until, uh, well, I don't want to get into spoilers here, but so, yeah, but the, the, that basic idea was in there from the get go. And that, uh, I was going to have this character in a room full of comic books, this idea that they would start to, uh, feel like they, they couldn't leave the room until they'd sort of solve the mystery of what, what these comic books are there for. There was definitely a movement of like starting to see, getting a sense that there's hidden messages in the comics that are possibly directed towards the reader of the book and an increasing amount of paranoia. So that was sort of like that basic structure was in place early on. Uh, it took a long time to work out the sort of beat by beat details to where I felt like it was ready to be a full length book work. Like I, you know, for a long time I thought it might be a short story and it's, you know, it's not a very long, it's like 120 pages uh, as a full book with the you know, chapter breaks and everything. So it's not a super long, I think of it kind of a novella or like a long short story, but things, a lot of it was in there from the beginning, like that whole, the image of the spiral rug, which is a leitmotif throughout the book and which is the first panel of the book. 
um, is something that came to me pretty early on. And I don't remember why, but I instantly connected it to that, to this, to the Ex Libris project of like this idea of um, entering this room, you're crossing this threshold and, you know, the, the lines all get messed up and your, your, your sense of perspective gets shifted in some uh, irrevocable way until you actually leave the room again. And then I had a lot of story, you know, some of the stories that are in the book have been around for a long time, like the, the man who forgot time and um, the uh, Mulata of Cordoba, which is in the last chapter. Some of these bo- stories I'd written quite a while ago and I, I liked them. And I also saw that they had this thread to them about something about blurring the lines between fiction and reality, between art and real life, between the creator and the viewer. And so it seemed to make sense to weave those into a longer narrative. And, and there's frankly a, a practical aspect of that where it's like, it's really hard to sell a short story collection. People, you know, short stories are my, my favorite form. It's where I feel, you know, most comfortable. Part of me still dreams of someday doing a really long graphic novel, but I'm not really sure I have it into me. I, I feel like what I'm best at is a sort of eight to 20 page range story. And so that's another way I conceived of this book is like, how can I link together a series of stories in a way that has, that doesn't just feel like a kind of uh, omnibus with like a, you know, night gallery host or whatever, but like a real story, but that uses these pieces as part of a developing, uh, you know, narrative uh, mounting tension and, you know, surprise. As you say it, I wonder if the rug specifically serves as an anchor for the reader, sort of a landmark for them in the sense that you feel like you're kind of throwing them into this first person perspective, but also asking them to do the somewhat heavy lifting of jumping from text to text and attempting to forge a bridging narrative between them. You you at least have this object that you can keep coming back to that will give you some semblance of direction. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of putting it. I, I definitely... Uh, as I was working, that's one of those things that came out of the process of working on it. I, I definitely started to realize like I really, every few pages where I can need to fit that rug in there. Yeah. It's, it's like a sort of anchor that, that guides you through and also reminds you of this weird condition of this room that as long as the reader is in this room, <laughs> they're in this kind of weird distorted rug that's never quite in the right perspective. And, uh, and then it's also a reminder of, so it's a reminder of that skewed perspective. It's a reminder of the fact that you're in this little room where you can never even really get a view of the whole rug. It's usually like a little section of it that you see. Uh, and it's a spiral. So that's obviously associated with, with delirium and with, uh, you know, with, with dreams and stuff like that. So I worked that into the stories in various ways. Like when the reader gets really drunk at one point and the, the looks at the rug through a empty tequila bottle. And so then at that point, the sort of squared off maze like spiral turns into an actual circular spiral. Um, now it's, so that also gave me something to work with because it's also, it's a challenge and that's one aspect of constraint of doing a comic like this is how many things could I do where the only, all I have to work with is a bookcase, a futon and this rug that's like, you know, and a door. <laughs> There's like, there are very few props to play around with, for, you know, the limited angles that I can show. So, uh, so yeah, it became very useful and yeah, it'll, we'll have to see what readers say when, when, you know, it's people start reading it and, and responding to it, what, what the role of that little recurring leitmotif is. This is like very zeitgeisty to say, but it's a it's a liminal zone. The framing device itself is really, more than anything, is kind of the space in between the books. Yeah, yeah, there you go. 
Do you abandon ideas a lot? You know, when you do sort of start to sit down and work on something in earnest, do you tend to generally work all the way through? No, absolutely. Uh, I abandon stuff all the time. And that's, I think, one reason it's taken me so long to get a uh, a full book out of comics is that, um, you know, 99, 99 Ways to Tell a Story came out in 2005. And granted, a bunch of other stuff happened. You know, we had two children. We wrote two textbooks together. We uh, were series editors of the Best American Comics for six years. We moved to France for four years. And in that time, I was, at, you know, once I finished 99 Ways, I really wanted to concentrate on doing short stories using constraints. I've done a bunch of them published in random small places that even my closest readers, I doubt, have read all this stuff. But on top of all that, I did have... in plans to do like a longer, like a, some kind of book range project. And I started various things. And I was, you know, I, I was even mindful of the fact that I was so busy that I was a father. I was teaching at SVA at the time and, you know, had t- downtime in a cafes in Manhattan. So I devised these systems where I had like a comic that was only going to be drawn on little, you know, index card size panels. So I could be modular and I could just have it in my backpack. And, and I had two projects like that, that, uh, you know, I worked pretty seriously on over the course of three or four years. And for different reasons, both of them, I just, you know, they just kind of petered out. And I was like, and, and, and several smaller ones too, you know, where I was like, pull, I'd pull out some sketches every once in a while and bang my head against them and um, eventually just uh, decided to move on, which is not to say they'll never come back to them. Even, you know, one of those things I put aside, I actually, you know, dusted off just recently and started looking at it with fresh eyes. And I was like, oh, I think I might be able to take another whack at this. I think there are very few projects that you can't do if you devote yourself to it and are ready to, uh, you know, sweat some blood. It's just a matter of what what hill you plant your flag on in that sense. So, like, you know, Reading Room could easily have been one of those projects. It's been uh, well, see, I'm calling it in its old, its working title. Uh, Ex Labris was called the Reading Room for a long time, um, and it was just kind of this thing. It was like, yeah, I, I like it, but can I really pull it off in a way that other people will get something out of it? And I wasn't sure. But when I decided uh, pretty recently in my the second half of our residency in Angoulême, I was like, I really, I, you know, time's running out here. I really need to like commit to something, have a project and make it a book. And I chose like Libris. And once I did that uh, and, you know, went through the notes I had, which I had a lot and I had thumbnails for various scenes, I kind of sat down. I was like, all right, there's enough here to work on. This is what I'm doing now. And from that point on, it was pretty smooth sailing. Like I, you know, it was a lot of work and I did some rewrites and had my, my, you know, dark nights of the soul about the whole thing, you know, not working at all. But, but basically um, I, I hit that bump cross that, that Valley, you know, um, Jessica calls it the dark forest, which was, I think she got that idea from Ira Glass, this idea of in any creative project, you reach this point where you're just wandering in like, you know, in the dark, in the, in the, in the Schwarzwald and you're, you know, disoriented and you feel like you're never going to get out. But you, all you can do is just keep going and plotting away. And eventually you usually come out the other end. So, but yeah, plenty of abandoned projects behind me and plenty to be abandoned in the future, I'm sure. I like the use of the term modular. I write about tech for a living. So that's something that, you know, that we talk about a lot in terms of, mm-hmm. of modular hardware. But uh, it's an interesting idea in terms of stories that you can plug in. Now, certainly working on a large project seems insurmountable because we're really just kind of looking at the the finish line and, and yeah. we're calculating the amount of time and the amount of sweat that it will take to get there. If you can break it up into smaller pieces, it's a lot easier. And I and I look at something like Ex Libris, it does feel modular. It does mm-hmm. feel like something that you could have and probably did work in 
in chunks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and no, I'm very into uh, thinking about things in chunks. I'm, I'm a big, uh, you know, getting things done guy, and I have my whole, you know, process for breaking projects into little pieces as possible. Um, and that definitely was helped me to get a grip on Ex Libris. You know, same thing for Nine Nine Ways to Tell a Story. It was that that was a fun project to work on because it was always so straightforward. It's like, all right, one more, same story, do it again. What are my choices? You know, go through my list, pick one that works, let's keep going. The one downside or, or other, you know, context in terms of a book like Ex Libris and also 99 Ways. And a lot of my work, unfortunately, is that um, because there are so many different types of stories and types of drawing in there, I'm often losing hours, days, sometimes weeks, reinventing the wheel because I've decided that this one page, I'm going to draw it like it's a imaginary, you know, 18th century, you know, slave narrative uh, done in some kind of imaginary lino print technology. And I'm going to try and reproduce that, you know, in pen and ink. And I do a lot of research online and, uh, you know, do a lot of sketches and stuff. In that sense, you know, I look at artists who have like just the way they draw and they were able to just like start working on the book and plow through from beginning to end. And I dream of doing that one day, but I'm not sure it'll ever happen because I'm always drawn by that, that plastic possibility of comics more than any other medium to really pull the rug out from under the reader at any time by introducing color, introducing a different drawing style, changing the panel shape or size. There's just so much fun stuff you can do with that, that I, I always find myself uh, being pulled in that direction. So I was thinking a lot about Bob Skoriak's work as I was reading this in terms of instead of the, the medium being the message, almost the style being the message, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of genre or, or the artist that he's, that he's taking on really telling the story. And, and when I think about him and the sort of the very specific niche that he's ca- carved out for himself in the comics world, it, it either seems like the best job in comics or the worst job in comics. And I can't really... <laughs> figure out which I, I think he's very he's very happy with it I think um, yeah we're very simpatico definitely and and we share that aspect of like using a different kind of constraint where and and seeing the the pleasure and richness in appropriating kind of traditional drawing styles but he does it more whole hog like I'll use it I in you know ex libris there's a there's a you know tales in the crypt parody there's some kind of Hanna-Barbera animal cartoon stuff in there but just little dribs and drabs but he really, and and what's fun to do that is to see how you use the particular conventions of a given style, like Tales in the Crypt, which he's also played around with. Of course, you have the garish colors. You also have the com- the com- completely overdone narration with all the cheesy alliteration and stuff. There's a lot of fun to to to, to riff on, and uh, the various you know Jack Davis, Bernie Wrightson, uh, you know uh, all the different artists that worked on those books that you can kind of riff on in different ways. What's different about him is that he he's really taken it and really considers it as like a kind of life a life's conceptual artwork project. Kind of like Own Kawara, the, the the conceptual painter who just painted a black canvas with the day the day's date in white, you know, and then included a newspaper in the back and then sealed it up, you know, for his whole life for something like 70 years. That's kind of how Bob sees his comics project. He's just, I've talked to him about it before and like, so what are you going to do next? You have some other, you know, kind of stuff you're going to play around with or, you know, and he's like, no, I, I just kept so many ideas. I have so much fun doing this like particular thing of, you know, doing these mashups of the drawing styles and the literary works. And I can see why, because it's like, you can, there's just so much richness to be found when you, the more you dig into the particularities of a given work of literature, whether it's, you know, Scarlet Letter or the Constitution, and then a given 
popular comic book style or artist. You just find all these little resonances that you can tweak. Like I remember in it was Scarlet Letter was done in Little Lulu style. And there's this little thing, which I guess they use in little, I haven't read a ton of Little Lulu, but there's a thing, I guess, when kids, when the kids are stunned or something, there's like three, a triangle of three dots in front of that kind of floats above them. Almost like the drunk kind of. Yeah. It's almost kind of like a delirious kind of thing. And Bob uses that brilliantly in that Scarlet Letter thing to kind of be express this sort of like existential unease of the characters. So, uh, so yeah, he, it's a real deep dive for him. I suspect that part of why you're drawn to experimenting with different styles is really pragmatically it's just a way of keeping yourself engaged exactly yeah it it keeps me excited that's why it keeps on drawing me back and uh i would have to hit on a way of drawing and i definitely experimented with it like in uh in bridge i don't know if you got the the mini kush that i did that one is a you know it's a 24 page story so it's like all right i'm gonna really work on just having a pretty simple style that i'm happy with that i can imagine you know imagine developing and for a longer work. And I could see some stuff there where like given the right project, I might be able to do that. And I'm curious, I'm curious to see if I was able to op- adopt something like that, if I would suddenly turn into Louis Trondheim, although I suspect not, but um, you know, he's one of those guys like him and like, you know, Jason, certain artists who have this kind of, this sort of style that's almost like, it's like a mental stencil. They can just like crank it out and they just, you know, and which is not to take away from it because they do very rich things and both of them work in different genres and have these whole worlds that are very distinct. They're iconic. I mean, they're immediately, you know, the second you see one of their panels that it's- Yeah, right. Which is another advantage because I do feel like I've probably suffered over the years from not having a recognizable style. Like if you know, I mean, I, I do have a style, like I'm always- I used to be surprised when people say like, oh, I could tell that was your drawing in, in even in my early mini comics when I didn't even know how to draw yet. But there, you know, we all have this, we all have style. There's just, there's something in the, in the way, in the physiological way that you hold hands, hold, hold a pen in your hand that Gary, you know, Gary Panner has that ratty line. Cause that's just the way his hand works. You know, partly it's his theory and like being influenced by, by the teachers he had and by pop art, but it's also just the way his hand goes. <laughs> you know, I used to, my earliest comics mentors were uh, Terry Laban, who used to do Unsupervised Existence and Cud, and Matt Fazell, who did the Amazing Cynical Man mini comics. And when Matt would go to comics conventions, he would always have like a bulletin board behind him with post-its. And if you came up, you, you could take a post-it and you could draw his Cynical Man character, which you've never seen. It's like, it's literally just a circle with two dots for eyes and the line. And the only thing that makes it a character is that the line goes out one side of the circle of the head that's sort of the cynical man look uh and then a line for the body and if you drew that on a post-it he would stick it on the wall and he would give you a free mini comic it was a really cool thing that he did sort of like a community thing a lot of young people would do it but what's remarkable is that at the end of the show i'd come over to his table and there'd be 50 uh cynical man drawings these very simple stick man drawings and none of them looked like cynical man because none of them were drawn by matt the weight the particular the line weight the little flick of his hand when he picks up the pen the way those two dots are, as simple as that is, it's a very iconic drawing. I think that's a real lesson to me about how, how much you know each artist has a style, whether they think they do or want to or not. I was going to say about you know the, the, the tedium of drawing over and over again. I, mean, I, I remember a conversation with an artist friend who was a very good you know, art, he did sort of like ink drawings with wash and stuff. And they were you know, kind of comics. And he loved, he liked comics. We talked about comics a lot. But at one time he said, um, he's like, I just don't know how to do it. I, I can't imagine drawing the same character over and over again. I can't do it. You know, um, it's definitely like there's a certain temperament and uh, approach to the idea of what, what you're doing 
uh, and the, the sanctity or non-sanctity of a particular image that you just yeah, trace it and draw it again, you know? I've talked to Bob about this a, a number of times over the years, and I'm trying to remember what his take on it was, but he had had a style, I think, before he hit on the work that he's doing now. Now, it sounds like your definition of your style isn't so much a, a specific trademark aesthetic, but rather something that kind of that works across all of these different styles that you're working in, something that kind of unites them. I mean, in that sense, are you are you almost actively working against your own style when you're trying to <laughs> work in different milieus? To some degree, maybe. I mean, uh, I think two things about my my style. One is that I, I do. There is that basic, just like there's a hand in it. Where like now, where I see a drawing I did with with a nib pen or with a brush, and I can see the similar characteristics to just the way I the way I bear down on on the tool and the kind of line it makes and the kind of shapes I create. But at the same time, people I've seen over time that what people react to most in my the drawings and the comics I've done in the past is when I do. Um, a thick, a thicker, brushy ink line, um, like I did in my first book, Black Candy, and I've done, you know, come back to in short stories. Sometimes, John Onward has that as kind of part of the. There, there's sort of two, you know, again, there's two styles in that book as a sort of framing story drawn with a very clean pen line, uh, and then the sort of comic within a comic that is uh, done in really thick brush lines, and. Um, I like I like doing that, and I and I, it definitely is. It's the drawings of mine that get most response. Have that kind of look. I can't I can't exactly say why I've shied away from it. I guess to some extent, I know I'll ne- I know I'll never be able to wield a brush like Edmond Baudouin or uh, Blutch, or you know, with that kind of looseness. Aristophan, who I, who I translated Zabim Sisters, uh, or on the other hand, you know. Like Dan Klaus or, uh, or or Charles Burns have that that incredible control. You know, there's always definitely I, one quality in my style is like I'm not a very steady drawer up close. So there's a little bit of shying away from from that uh, mantle, and a little bit of like feeling like trying just trying to find. I don't think my stuff is cold. I think there's actually uh, it, it pleases me a lot in reviews of my work that even though like oh comic scholar and Matt Madden and Ubapo and France and all this stuff. But very often people do see uh, a warmth in my in in the stories that I'm telling that sort of comes through at the same time as I'm playing around with sort of more conceptual ideas and playing with the, you know being very formalist and stuff. But I wouldn't say I'm a an emo cartoonist. <laughs> I'm not very you know the the emotions in there, but like brush brush is very expressionistic. I guess that's what it comes down to. And I, and I kind of go back and forth. I, I find myself in the middle of these things more often than not, where I, I'm always kind of vacillating to one side or the other. Because I look at someone like uh, Richard McGuire or, um, you know, Ivan Brunetti's more you know mature style, where it's like a very clean, cool, uh, modernist kind of uh, simple style. I really admire that. And I, also, I often think like, I should, that's what, that's the style I need. You know, that's what, that's going to solve all my conundrums. But um, it's not really, uh, I haven't really found that in, in my own drawing. You know, it's something that I want to draw like Saul Steinberg, you know, by the time I'm like 80 years old, I want to be drawing like Saul Steinberg, but it's a process, you know, it's very slow. There's a Chris, Chris Ware sketchbook. And in it, he, he just writes, I think in the middle of the page, he just writes, like, I wish I could draw like Gary Panther. And I think mm-hmm. about that a lot because yeah. I think that there's this impulse amongst the most meticulous artists to just want to feel freer in their style. Yeah, to fuck shit up. 
Yeah, I remember, you know, speaking to like Charles Burns, I loved finding years ago, he, they put out a collection. Uh, I, I guess he's got a new, his free shit stuff is out now, but there was a book, like just sketchbook stuff. There was like Kitchen Sink Press. It was back in like the early 90s, I think. It was so cool to see his style. And again, it's very clearly Charles Burns. There's no mistaking it, but little scribbly drawings done with like a ballpoint pen, you know, and seeing that very different vital uh, effects, you know, uh, is always very cool. So I, I like seeing people mix it up that way. I'd love to see a sloppy Jaime Hernandez drawing, you know, give him, give him, make him work with like, in like dry brush and with like charcoal or something like that. You know, you, you almost wonder if he can at this point, just because he's been doing what he does for so long. No, it becomes a thing that's very hard to get out of. And I, and artists, um, struggle with it to varying degrees. I think there's a curse, uh, there's a curse of virtuosity, which I'm blessedly free of. But, uh, you know, that you see in, in like, you know, in, char- in Chris Ware's, you know, uh, rank, you know, self-doubt in his sketchbooks. Uh, I know like Roman Muradov is always complaining about that on his Instagram and stuff that his like, he can't, he almost can't help but make something look really charming and pretty. And he's always trying to make it look more alienating and weird, which he certainly ex- succeeds in his storytelling. But the drawing is always like, even his messiest drawings have this kind of like kind of panache to them. <laughs> and it really, I think it really annoys him. He's like, why am I so, why am I so good and facile? You know, why can't I do something awkward? I, I think about this a lot looking at the current uh, landscape of American indie comics, really world, world comics. But, you know, I was gone after doing the best American comics for years, I was pretty burnt out. And then, and we moved to France. So I, I kind of like dropped out of the American comic scene for several years. And there's all these new people, you know, doing amazing stuff. And it's very much, you know, kind of uh, under this, the sway or a kind of a generational shift that start that can be traced back to Gary, but like, you know, Fort Thunder and, and CF and, uh, and stuff that's coming over from Europe and then the technology of the risograph and, uh, and also, you know, adventure time and some stuff that that's going on in animation that is, uh, you know, this whole total shift in the way comics are drawn. Like when I was discovering indie comics in the, you know, late nine, late eighties, Dave's comics in Ann Arbor, you know, um, the stuff that was weird and cool was like, you know, Dan Klaus, the Hernandez brothers, and there was stuff like Pete Bagged that was like more cartoony, but it was still very much, there was like a kind of, there was certain, uh, a certain ethic to American indie comics of like, you know, clean pages, you know, nice looking art, you know, it might be crazy stuff going on, but it was like very carefully put together. They had something to prove, I, I think, you know, they, they had to prove that they were professionals. It's hard to remember. I mean, it's such a different context back then. And, um, and I think, uh, where did I see... I saw an interview with someone else remarking that from my generation, even older, like looking at these younger cartoonists who are just like working in pencil or just doing it in procreate and, you know, collaging in colors and printing it in risograph with, you know, and, and putting out tons of stuff. And it was someone like, uh, might've been Durf or someone like that, you know, has very you know, pattern heavy, you know, I'm really glad I didn't commit to like being a heavy crosshatch <laughs> cartoonist as a young guy. Cause it's, I'm slow enough just doing pretty like line art with, with black spotting. But he was remarking sort of admiringly of like the younger generation, like, oh yeah, they're not so caught up in like proving that they can do, you know, modeled cross hatching and stuff like that. It's a shift. And then, and it's also a cycle, like these things, you know, come in and out of style. Cause of course, Gary was doing this stuff before this all started. But I was thinking about in this context, I was thinking about Ron Rigi's work and how incredibly 
original, even more back then, like I think even now Ron stuff is kind of like sui generis, but you know, in, uh, 1995 or whatever, when the Dum Dum book came out, uh, there was like just very little else out in the world that looked like that in, in comics, you know? Uh, and now there's like, there's definitely like a mainstream of like weird art, you know, where like I go to a comic book store that has a lot of great art comics and I'm very impressed. And there's lots of invention there, but I, I do start to see like, Oh, I see this sort of, there's a lineage here that goes back to, you know, to Fort Thunder or this one. They're like, they've been studying manga and uh, adventure time and they're fusing that together. There's like new kind of traditions forming, which, you know, 10, 15 years from now are also going to seem kind of hoary and, and uh, out of fashion, but then they'll come back and it'll close in a cycle. That's my hope, obviously, because, uh, you know, this goes back to, you know, this book that I'm doing where it's like, like I already said, kind of metafiction and Calvino and stuff is not particularly in fashion. I don't think it's, you know, canceled or anything either. It's just, it's just not something that people, it's not really in the zeitgeist. And I, you know, and I, I feel that way about the way most of the drawing I do, like I was, you know, sort of surveying, I have like tons of different styles in the book, but I look at it, I have to admit like, well, it all, it still sticks within that range of my generation's kind of classic sense of like from newspaper comics to, to Chris Ware, basically that, that sort of range. I hope people will still like it and, uh, you know, find the appeal of whatever, you know, whatever style it's drawn in.